seed. So now, this morning, we're going to turn to the Word, and uh, I'm excited to share it with you. I was quite excited by the fact that before the rioting and looting, God led us into a time of fasting and prayer, which we've continued with, and thank you for your faithfulness, saints, in doing that. And um, also, I felt led to start a series prior to all of that nonsense that was going on in the country, speaking about responding to the times. And of course, in my mind, I was thinking about the COVID vaccine. And then, of course, we had the added insult to <laughs> injury of the anarchy that was going on, the pillaging and plundering. Man, it was disturbing to see base human nature without Christ, I tell you. It also just highlighted the fact of sin and the presence of sin. And when you take restraint of what happens to base human flesh. And uh, that's why we need revival. That's why we need a move of God. So the last couple of weeks, in light of all this, I've been talking about the fact that when we go through trials and periods of temptation, for us it is a test. It's not God's anger. It's not God's disappointment. And it's not God's judgment on us. What it is is God's confidence in us that we will pass through these things. Now, they don't come from God. They come from a world we live in. They come from wicked people, the devil initiating some of it. And, um, you know, good people's flesh, our own mistakes, our own lack of wisdom. I don't want to spend too much time covering that. I've got to get onto the Word this morning and to get through what I want to share with you. But the whole thing is that, you know, what the enemy means for harm, God means for good. And God allows us, because our faith is so central to our Christian walk, our faith then becomes such a precious God commodity that, um, that God needs to refine our faith because we live by faith. We stand by faith. Everything is by faith from first to last. So if faith is so central and so essential, God wants to refine our faith so that gold perishes, even though refined by fire, Peter says, but our faith will not perish because it has eternal value. It continues for all of eternity. And so God is concerned about that. And of course, in the midst of that, it does something for our character. As we persevere in faith, faith produces the trial, then produces character, character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint us because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we understand that anything God allows us to go through and face, number one, he's with us. Number two, he loves us. And so Paul talks about that fact in Hebrews 12, and he's referring to Deuteronomy 8, and he's also referring to Proverbs chapter 3, where God is treating us as sons, sons that he loves, not you know, illegitimate children. The King James uses a very unfortunate word, but God treats us as legitimate, loved sons, and so he's got full confidence on us, and we see that in Romans chapter 5. Now, without going into that too much, I spoke about what should our response be and how to respond. And last week I gave us about 10 things that were extremely, extremely practical. Now I'm trusting that today that it will also be practical, but what I want to do is to dive in and to have a look a little bit at the life of Daniel. I'm busy writing a book, so you can continue to pray for me for that. It's a lot of study. And Daniel features, obviously, quite centrally because of eschatology, his prophecy of the 70 weeks, which is in chapter 9. And we're going to have a look at a little bit at that. But there are two things that I want to stress today that in trying times, whatever they are, many and varied, it's important to try and respond and not to react. 
And of course, there are times when we blow it and we react, but we have an amazing avenue to take afterwards, and that's called repentance. And that's going back and saying, Lord, I'm really sorry. I blew it. You know, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we can go back and ask God for forgiveness. And of course, He forgives us, and we pick ourselves up, and we continue. So a correct response to God constitutes a few things. Number one, a correct response is to keep believing in the sovereignty of God. God reigns supreme over all. God hasn't lost control. It may have looked in the last few weeks like God has, but he certainly hasn't lost control. But God is not only in control overall in the affairs of the world. God is in control over your life and my life. He's sovereign. Second thing is we need to have faith in his goodness, especially his goodness towards me. Sometimes it's easy to believe in the goodness for the group, but that his goodness is extended towards me. That's why he allows the trials is to refine my faith. And like Joseph, that what the enemy means for harm, God means for good, and he's bringing me into the image of his son. So faith in his goodness. Have faith in his confidence in you, or have faith in his confidence in the word and the spirit that he's instilled in us. And that's Romans chapter 5. Respond with the right attitude, you know, the appropriate right attitude, the right attitude which is appropriate for the particular trial. Now, it doesn't mean to say we doormats, but then we don't become aggressive and self-defensive and self-justifying. We react appropriately. And then, of course, all of our response must be based on his word. Go back to his word. You know, we can't get into the garden syndrome where when things happen, we hide from God, where we flee from his word. We need to then dive into his word. We need to immerse ourselves in his presence when we're going through difficulties. Respond with his word. Also, and together with that, respond with the prophetic word. Paul tells Timothy, wage war with the prophecies once made about you. Remind yourself of them, remind God of them, and remind the enemy that you have not lost perspective, that you've got the word made more certain in prophetic promises, and that you stand on them. And then today, I want to touch on something that it's imperative in all of our temptations, all our trials, all our testings, all difficult times, and a response that we need to have is to up our prayer time. I hope that you get that. You know, we need to up our prayer time. It's amazing how much energy we lose in stressing, in anxiety, in worrying, in fretting, the amount of emotional, spiritual, mental, physical energy. It's so draining. If we could learn to channel some of that energy into praying, I think we would handle things so much better. And we need to drive ourselves. We need to be driven to pray. We need to take that as our default shortcut, the word in prayer. But this morning I'm stressing prayer. And so, because without it, we lose perspective. David said it as well. When I considered the wicked, my foot almost slipped. I almost stumbled. I started to say the wrong things. I started to believe the wrong things. He said, till I entered the sanctuary. In other words, when I got into God's presence. Perspective is an incredible thing. And uh, some years ago, I think it was about 2004, I suffered a stroke. And um, for a while, it affected some of my peripheral vision. And uh, it was at that time, in that period of time, I discovered how important perspective was. It was amazing. Because of the damage of the peripheral vision, one of the things that I lost was perspective and um, perception. 
And so I would often walk in because it affected the left-hand side. I would often walk into the door frame of the door because I couldn't judge anymore and walking through the door. So I would walk in, I would slam this little bone here into the door, you know, and Bev would say, what's the matter? I just, I didn't see it. But also going to pour, for example, if I took a bottle of water now and I wanted to pour it into my glass of water, because of the perception, the depth of field and things like this, I would miss the glass. I would pour out next to the glass. And I started to realize how important it was to have two fully functioning eyes, you know. So my central vision, and on this side, the peripheral vision was okay. Central vision wasn't blurry or anything like it. So what I can see, I can see perfectly. But it's the peripheral vision. And the amazing thing is, you know, when you lose one eye or partial sight in in one eye, this actually was peripheral on both my eyes, is that your depth of perception is greatly diminished. You know, in photography, it's called depth of field. And um, through a friend of mine, I've just got to love photography now, and um, especially wildlife and bird photography, and things that I've learned. And, uh, you know, I just love the modern cameras. The first thing is that when you look through at your particular subject, you have um, a focus mechanism, and you can set it different ways, but if you press the button halfway down, you've got what you call an autofocus. You can do it manually, but there's a setting where you can do it automatically. And focus is what gives your image that sharp, clear, defined, you know, where you can see it very clearly. But depth of field, you know, sometimes you take a photograph of a bird, and depending on the depth of field, you can have the bird absolutely in focus. But if you've shortened your depth of field, you knock everything out in the background, and everything in the background becomes blurred. And that's one way of doing photography. And the other way is extending the depth of field, depending on what you want to do. And you can have the subject in focus, plus you can have your background in focus. Now, that's depth of field. And one of the things that I've realized is that very often in trying times, we can A, either be out of focus, or B, we can lose a sense of depth of field because it's almost like some of our vision has become blurred. And the incredible thing is, is that prophecy is God's way of giving us depth of field because he's giving us a word for the future And he's setting my present circumstances into the context of what is ahead. So suddenly, I can look up and I can have depth of field. The Word of God gives me my clear focus. And so we need the Word and we need prophecy. And so God's Word correctly understood and and with prophecy is God's way of giving the Christian depth of field. Now, this is what we discover with the great prophet Daniel. So I need to just walk you through it, and then I'm just going to quickly try and give you some of the pointers that I want to look at this morning. Because what I'm trying to help us to do is in these particular times, and at any other time, when you're going through things, an appropriate response to trying times or difficulties or periods of temptation is prayer. Respond in prayer, in faith to God. Take it to the Lord in prayer. There's a great hymn concerning that. And so let me just quickly run through Daniel. I'm just going to quickly run through. Daniel 1 is Daniel's account of when he was taken into captivity to Babylon. Daniel chapter 2, he was one of the selected men around the king and became part of his wise men with whom the king would consult. You know the story. The king has the dream of the statue, which was down to five successive empires, four in the main. 
And uh, Daniel interprets the dream, and then he's promoted to head of all the magicians and astrologers and things like that. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar decides he doesn't just want to be the head of gold. He wants to be the whole statue. And so he has a statue of gold made of himself. And the instruction is everybody must bow down and worship where Daniel was. I don't know. Maybe he was standing next to the king. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar kind of turns to God after that with the deliverance of the four. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, then it continues. He has a second dream of a tree that's cut down. And um, Daniel interprets it, of course, that Nebuchadnezzar would lose his mind, become a beast of the field, but he would be restored. He would turn to God. A heart of man was given to that beast, basically some of the prophecies. And so he was restored. In chapter 5 is the story now where Belshazzar is introduced. Now, I think that's his son. Some say it was his grandson, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And, of course, you know, they're living righteously and things like this. And then the handwriting on the wall, many, many tickle parson. And, of course, Daniel comes in and interprets that. And that very day, the Medo-Persian Empire takes over and defeats Babylon. So now you're going to the second kingdom, which is the torso, okay? And that we see in Daniel chapter 5. It's really interesting that Darius the Mede, and then later it was Cyrus the Persian, but it was a combined empire at that stage, the Medes and Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it seems like Darius was an appointee general looking after that area under Cyrus, the king of the Medes. Okay, then we go into Daniel chapter 6. And this, he has this story, and it's set right in the time of Darius, the Mede. And right in the time when there was an instruction not to pray, and that was a setup for Daniel, Daniel continues praying, and he's caught out, and he's thrown into the lion's den, but God delivers him. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a dream or vision of four beasts, and he names these terrifying beasts. And um, the incredible thing is, there are, it's different symbolism, but it's exactly the same as the statue. It's four successive empires. But right in the middle of Daniel chapter 7, there's some incredible verses, and I'm going to read them for you in a moment, where in the middle of all of this shenanigans, you know, and all of these horrendous, terrifying empires that are violent and domineering and destructive. God shows that the courts of heaven have sat and they've all been judged, but judgment is made and pronounced in favor of the saints and the kingdom of God is given to the saints. Now, church, I've just got to pause right here and just interject and say this. We've got to understand what was true then is true now. We're looking at attempted insurrection. We're looking at stuff that's happening, not only in South Africa, but all over the world. And it's mind-blowing, the insanity, and the wickedness that's going on in the world. Does God have a hand on it? Is God in control? Are things run out of control and God's sitting there flustered in heaven and going, oh my word, oh my word, I've lost control. No, absolutely not. You know, and that's why I'm doing a teaching soon that Satan is not the God of this world. God is the God of this world. But anyway, we'll come to that later. He's not lost control. And whatever happens down here, the fact of the matter is God has already judged and God has made a pronouncement, a judgment, a declaration. And the kingdom of which he is the king, which shall fill all of the earth, that's Daniel chapter 2, that kingdom has been given over to us and has been put with the saints. And that was part of Jesus' teaching when he looked at his disciples, this little motley crew of 12, 
And he called them my little children. You know, and he says, it's been the Father's good pleasure to confer on you a kingdom. Come on, saints. You know, you might find weak and insignificant, and what can you do? Do your prayers matter? You know, when you're looking at global events, if we have a clear understanding of the word, we can pray national and international change. We can pray for God to change things, bring down and raise up. We just got to look at Elijah. One man prophesied and prayed and turned a nation to God. That's why James 5 says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so, you know, we don't only have examples of Elijah. Daniel was such a man who had worldwide effects, but certainly a national influence because of his prayers. And he did this while working. Amazing. And so... It's important for us to understand that. Then in chapter 8, the angel Gabriel comes to him, and Daniel has another dream or vision of a ram and a he-goat. And what God was showing him was that the next empire was about to take over, and then it would be the kingdom of Greece. So that would be Daniel chapter 8. So the Medes and the Persians are resembled by the ram and the he-goat. Then we come to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, he has another visit from the angel Gabriel. In fact, in chapter 10, he has another visit from the angel Gabriel. And then in chapter 11, oh my word, God gives him a detailed chronology of events between northern and southern kingdoms that would be ruling in that area of the land of promise, the promised land, you know, from Egypt up to the top sort of Syria and that area where nations would be, you know, fighting this way and that way, etc. Kings coming, kings going down, then the south is in power, then the north is in power, and how it would affect. And it was an absolute blueprint program that God was giving Daniel, showing what would happen right up until the time of Jesus. And then there's indications of what would take place right up to AD 70. So God was giving him a timetable and saying, hey, Daniel, let me just sort out your depth of field. Let me just give you focus, you know, through the word and then particularly through the visions and dreams. So let's call it prophecy. And God gives him this depth of field and saying, hey, everything's great. I'm conferring a kingdom on you. I am busy. I am working. Yes, you're in trials now. Yes, you're in captivity. Hey, and I'm using sentences that a lot of people are using in their posts. God's saying, hey, I've got this. I've got this, Daniel. You know, just chill. Just relax. But pray. And so it's really important. So Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So he was seeing something in the spirit that was going to be played out through the kingdoms, and they were going to receive and possess the kingdom. Daniel 7, 26, but the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed, one of the rulers of one of those empires. Then the sovereignty, listen to this, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Wow, church, I'm trusting that this is giving you some inspiration, giving you some motivation, giving you some confidence, giving you some depth perception, depth of feel for you to say, okay, I don't want to be short-sighted. My depth of focus, my perception to be out, and I'm missing the glass of water here. And for us to see that we look at what we're going through here, but at the same time, we have an eye of faith out on what is going on ahead, and we don't lose 
perspective. It's very sad to me that a lot of South Africans are losing perspective and fleeing the country. And for me, that's tragic. Great for them that they go to somewhere else where there's peace and there's opportunity. But listen, God has a mandate for this country. God has got a plan and purpose for the country, and we are part of it. What if we all abdicate and all run away? And I'm not saying all those that they leave are abdicating. I understand what I'm saying. But somebody's got to stay, and somebody's got to stand, and somebody's got to take responsibility, and someone's going to say, hey, I'm going to pray this thing through. You know, I don't have a choice. I can't go anywhere. God's called me here. So here I am. But I want to keep my focus clearly on what God has for us. So now Daniel chapter 9. So we get to Daniel chapter 9. You know, it's very, a lot of the books of the Bible are not written in chronological time order. And the same with the book of Daniel. I read through and I just told you what happened in 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to chapter 9. But actually chapter 9 and chapter 6 are linked. They are at the same period of time. And so in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is considering the visions that he saw of the four beasts in chapter 7. He's considering what he saw of the he-goat and the ram, chapter 8. Then he comes into chapter 9. It's 12 years later, and he's still trying to understand, you know, what he's been seeing in the dreams and visions. Gabriel came to him in chapter 8, and then Gabriel now comes to him in chapter 9 and then gives him a slightly further perspective course, which continues in 10 and 11 and then ends in chapter 12. And so let me just remind you. So let's go and have a look at it in Daniel chapter 9 and in verse 1. So it says, in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, the King James calls him Ahasuerus, but Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylon. That was under Cyrus, the king of Persia. Kingdom of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures. Now, I'm just going to pause there and say this. Get your understanding from the scriptures. Get your understanding from the scriptures. Go to the scripture. Don't go to the newspaper. Don't go by what you see on the news. Don't go by what the politicians say. They all lie. You know, that's politics. It's another word for lying. And so don't go and look at that. Get your understanding from the word, but a correct understanding. That's why I try to teach you, ACF, as much biblical content as possible for you to understand because there's so many people who are prophesying and saying things, and it's fooey, it's baloney, it's Old Testament stuff, and it's wrong eschatology. You know, it turns my stomach. I don't even want to watch that stuff. So he said, I understood from the scriptures. Get your understanding from the word. That according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. So it's now a prophecy which is in the word, which is now scripture. So you can get prophetic words out of the scripture, not just from prophets. But there we are. That the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now here's another thing that I want to bring to you. Like all trials, like all periods of temptation, it doesn't go on forever. There is a time period. And so their time period was coming to an end. And when Daniel reads this, I think it's in Jeremiah 19 and Jeremiah 25, and then I think Zechariah also prophesied that in Zechariah 1. He probably got it from Jeremiah's prophecy. But here it is, 70 years. And he starts to calculate the time from when they went into captivity. And he realized there's only a couple of years left. So this prophetic word has got to come to pass. And he said, so I turned to the Lord God, verse 3, and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So church, what I'm trying to say to you is this, that our response must be in prayer, but our prayers must be based on the word 
and if you've had prophetic words, so I'm trying to keep the context, our trials and testing, and um, if we've had prophetic words, to remind God of those. Because if they're true prophetic words, you could almost say that it's like Scripture or it reinforces Scripture. And so he prayed to the Lord his God. And um, those three verses are pretty, pretty amazing. So Daniel begins to pray for himself and his people. And uh, his prayer is one of confession, number one. That's part of his prayer. And the second part, it's a petition to God to answer. And God then sends Gabriel to give Daniel understanding and insight into the vision he'd received and uh, in order to give him perspective. Daniel's model of praying, I think this morning that we can take it as a pattern for our praying in all times of testing and trial and temptation, but particularly in this particular time of praying. Now, I've already mentioned the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We saw that with Elijah. We see it with Daniel. But we have other examples of, for example, Smith Wigglesworth. You know, as he got older, the Second World War was raging. And towards the end of his ministry, I don't know if many of you know this, but that he would give himself to prayer day and night, day and night, day and night, day and night. And one day he walked out of his prayer room and he said, the prince of Germany has been bound. And of course, he gets that directly from these chapters in, in Daniel 7 and 8 and 9, when Michael eventually comes and he says, you know, from the day you set yourself to pray, which was 21 days ago, I was on my way, but the prince of Persia hindered me. I was in a struggle with him, but I got to and I've come. And after this, I'm going to go back to the prince of Greece. And that was what was happening in the spiritual realm because Persia now was in decline and Greece under Alexander the Great was about to take over. Don't tell me God is not in control. Don't tell me God is not sovereign. And listen, saints, my family members, if he can do this for nations, surely he can do it for you and he can do it for me. So that was a transitional time. But angels were involved in the background, and Gabriel was assigned to come and to bring insight and revelation and understanding to Daniel. So amazing. And of course, what was very interesting, and I didn't realize that three times in the prophecy of Jeremiah, God said, so it's a little nugget that I just want to throw out there. God said to the people of Israel, your captivity is imminent, so don't even pray for yourselves. Don't pray for yourselves. It's imminent. It's going to happen. And you know, sometimes, and the thing that I want to take out for this is not that we don't pray for ourselves, but sometimes what we need to be praying is not that God takes us out of times of trial and testing. You know, that which was not allowed by God, we can pray. But there are times when, and many times, in fact, most of the times, God allows us to go through. You know, and, and so what we need to be not doing is praying and saying, God, deliver us. Deliver us from this period, our captivity, if I could say it that way. Because he was saying to the Israelites, you're going to go through it, and you're going to go through it for 70 years. So don't pray. You're not going to get out of it. You're going to go through it for 70 years. But you know what he did say? He did say this. Pray for your captors. Pray that they prosper. Pray that they're in peace. Pray for Babylon that that country is prosperous and that, you know, they're at peace because your captivity, your trial will be even better for you. And then he also said, when you get there, don't live in tents. Buy houses, plant vineyards, settle into it. In other words, take it on the chin. You're going to go through it. And so sometimes when we're facing difficulties, we waste time and energy praying, God, get me out of this. God, get me out of this. We need to be praying, God, what can I 
get out of this. And so pray for the peace of those through whom a lot of your testing comes. You know, pray for yourself because sometimes it's our own lack of wisdom, however it is. But there's some little nuggets that we can take out of these. So, so if we look at Daniel chapter 9, and I don't want to take too much time on this, is that when Daniel set himself to pray, and said, when I realized the 70 years was up, and he set himself to pray, he'd open the windows, pray three times a day. That's where that story is picked up in Daniel chapter 6. That's when the other satraps saw, and they set him up with King Darius, and uh, you know, to ban fasting and praying and things like this. And so, but Daniel continued. And that's why he was thrown in the lion's den. So when you pick up the story in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, puts on sackcloth and ash and starts to fast and pray. Then it jumps back to chapter 6 and it shows you the outcome of his praying. Interesting. But God delivered him through that because of his faithfulness. And he was even promoted to 2IC of the whole kingdom. Come on, church, if we are faithful to God in prayer, if our response is the correct response, God will promote us in the Spirit. He received favor because of it. And so Daniel's prayer, it's very interesting. It's broken up of confession and then petition. And then later we see Gabriel's arrival and his announcement. And then right towards the end of chapter 9, we see what God says about the future that gave him depth of perception. Really amazing. And so... The amazing thing about all of this for me is that this promotion that came because Daniel responded the right way. He had the right attitude to the king, but he had the right attitude to God, and God favored him. You see, he found the favor of God, and he found the favor of man. And so it's important for us to know this. So another thing that I want to throw in you, by remaining faithful to his employer, Daniel was also remaining faithful to his God. If you're faithful to your employer and faithful to your business and faithful to pray for the household of God and faithful to pray for those around you, you're being faithful to God. So Daniel's prayer, Daniel's confession, we find in chapter 9, verses 4 to 15. And he prayed. Let me just read a couple of verses. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Now, it's very interesting. And you know, maybe this is not popular with current grace teaching and things like this. There is a time to confess your identity. There is a time to confess your righteousness in Christ. There is a time to confess your success, the goodness that you're the love of God and all of these kind of things that you are love. And there's a time for that. But one of the things that's important that when we blow it to confess our sin, as wide as the sin is, then, you know, after I've repented, then you can go back to your confession of I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, the way to understand this, imagine now, let me just use husbands as an example. Or an employee, as an example. So you're a husband now, and you just you're insensitive. You come home, you're cranky, you're horrible. You're in boss mode, sergeant major mode. You walk in the door, you snap at everybody because all your staff at work gave you a hard time, or or the boss moaned at you, or whatever. And you walk into the house like a tyrant, you know, like a tin pot dictator, and you're snapping at everybody. Your wife takes the brunt of it, 
And, um, you know, she comes to you and she points it out. And then you start saying, honey, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Honey, I want to tell you all God's goodness dwells in me. I want to tell you I'm the head and not the tail. I don't know if that's going to get you dinner. (laughs) I don't think it's going to go down really well. It's the wrong time to confess your identity in Christ. It is the right time to confess that you were a peanut and you really blew it and you were wrong. In other words, it's time for you to say, I'm a sinner. I sin. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. That was really insensitive. I should have changed hats when I walked in the door. I want my house to be a safe zone, not a war zone. And it's not an extension of the business. I mean, you know, you would get forgiveness. You would get dinner. And probably a nice loving cuddle or something like that. So we need to have confession in the right place at the right time. You know, the correct confession. So here's Daniel. Listen to what he did. He identified himself. Now, he was not one. If you read the story, he was righteous. But Daniel understood that even though I'm righteous, I'm still not perfect. You know, I'm still not fully righteous like God. I haven't arrived. You know, I've still got shortcomings and failings and things like this. And he identified, I'm one of you. And then he said, we have sinned. Listen to how he explains it. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. More than that, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord. And he says, but to us, open shame as it is to this day. And then he continues and he speaks about how the consequences of that got them driven out of their land and into exile and captivity. And that was what the law prophesied. That's what the law spoke of that would happen. And it was mentioned in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and many other places. Coincidentally, do you know in First Kings 8 and Second Chronicles 7, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, and he prayed, and you know, that's where a lot of people take 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people are called by my name, will humble himself and pray, then I will hear from heaven and turn and heal the land and things like that. Humble himself, I will turn and hear from heaven and heal the land. And they take that as revival praying. But really, in the context, I mean, and you can see, I mean, Solomon, listen, if we do this and your people turn and pray, you'll do this. God, if we do this and we turn and pray, you will do this. God, if we do this. And that's where Second Chronicles 7 comes in. And you can read it again, as I said, in First Kings chapter 8. And so the whole injunction is, look, you know, and, and Solomon was prophesying. He was really prophesying. And this is what Daniel is now doing. We're living in the consequences of it. And so listen, if you go through trials, temptations, difficulties, or whatever, and some of it's a lot of your wisdom and your fault, the best thing to do is to own it, own it, own it. Let your repentance be as wide as your stupidity or your sin or whatever, you know, and just do it. The second thing that Daniel confesses here is found in verse 13. He says in verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, that all this calamity will come upon us. And he says, yet, it's happened to us, yet, We have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Oh my goodness, what a word. You know, this is such a powerful teaching, powerful subject. I've been enjoying studying this, and I'm enjoying studying for writing the book, but powerful. And so it's not only have we sinned, but we've erred in the fact that we didn't seek you. Because if we turn to seek you, 
things would have got a lot better for us a lot sooner, even if it was just the fact that we were more strengthened and more able. Because remember the attitude of the Jews was then, how can we sing? Our captors are asking, sing us one of the songs of your land. And they were saying, our harps are hung on the willow tree, you know, as we sit by the rivers of Babylon. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Well, it was their choice not to. You can choose to sing the Lord's song of deliverance and perspective and the kingdom in a time of captivity, in a trial. And so seek the Lord. So then, you know, these verses are the expression of Dan's repentance and confession of sin for himself and his fellow Jews. So let me bring that point out. And Daniel did not minimize neither his sin nor the sins of his fellow Jews. And, you know, while we're praying for the country, you know, potentially they are saved because Jesus died for the sin of the whole world. And this is where the inclusionists and those get it wrong. And a lot of people that are into grace are, are heading borderline inclusion. And they are potentially saved only as far as the fact is that Christ has already paid it. And it's not just them waiting to come to the realization. It's much more than that. They are sinning. You know, the image of God in them is so marred that they are called darkness, not light. Not a little bit of light. They are called darkness. And the only way to come into that grace is through clear repentance. But until then, they are wicked, unrighteous sinners and sinning. So, yes, we must call it by what it is. But pray them to repentance and the knowledge of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second thing that he did, and I've already mentioned it, that Daniel turned to the word of God as spoken by the prophets and recorded in the Holy Scriptures. And that was the standard by which he measured his own sins and the sins of the fellow Israelites and identified it. You know, there's a, a whole thing these days because of the grace message that we really tone down and water sin, water it down. Sin is sin, iniquity is iniquity, transgression is transgression, and Daniel lists them all according to the revelation of the word. But Pastor John, that's Old Testament. All those words are in the New Testament. And it's still the Bible. It's still the Bible. And so don't water down sin. Don't water down your own. Don't water down your own lack of wisdom. I, Jesus, I blew it. I'm a bumpkin. I really, I'm a pumpkin. No, Pastor John, that's a false confession. No, that's a true confession of what I did. And so in praying for the nation, we need to call sin for what it is, sin. It's unrighteous, it's wicked, it's whatever. And for ourselves, and we need to identify sin the way God identified. Don't water it down. Oh, well, you know, I just made a little mistake. I blew it. I, I stumbled. You know, that kind of thing. We need to be clear and honest with God. Look at David's repentance. Thirdly, Daniel understands Israel's Babylonian captivity as the curse which has come upon the Jews because they broke God's covenant that he made with them at Sinai. So we're not cursed, but we, are, we do live in the consequences. And so we need to recognize this is the consequence of my mistake. And then, fourthly, we need to see that in contrast to our sin, we need to see the character of God. Man, one of the things that Daniel could clearly see, in sharp contrast to my failings, my inadequacies, and the people, he could look up and see the majesty, the sovereignty, and the power of God with all of his divine attributes. And we must never blur the lines, even in confessing our own righteousness. You know, we are in his image and likeness, and we are gods, but it's always little g. We are not God. 
you know? And so we need to magnify his greatness over our shortcomings, our sins, our failings. And Daniel's confession of sin is precisely what is required of Israel in order to be forgiven and restored. Isn't it amazing? If it's required, very often, the very thing that's required, that's the thing we try and avoid. You know, we will, the husband that's come in and acted like the sergeant major, very often, instead of saying sorry, will have cold shoulder for tea that night, you know, and he will have the silent treatment, and the next day, he will send flowers. Instead of saying, and that's his way of saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Well, it's better to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And then if you want to buy the flowers. But confession is important. Isaiah, it's in the early chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies this. And Isaiah says, God says, he's listening to you. He looks at birds. They know when to make their migration. They're flying in a direction. They're there for and they know how to turn around and fly back. If an animal stumbles and falls, he knows how to get up and keep walking. But I'm listening to my people, and they don't even know how to turn. They don't know what to say. And God says, I'm listening to hear if you will say the right thing. God doesn't want to hear your confession of his work of the cross at a time when you sin. If it's part of your repentance, yes. But God wants to hear your confession of sin. I was wrong. I have an anger problem. I have a control problem. You know, I get anxious. I have whatever. You know, God forgive me. I really blew that. I was really insensitive. Make your confession as wide as your sin because God is listening. Do what is required in order to find forgiveness, okay? Own up to the fact that you blew it. You know, you went ahead and you used money that you shouldn't have used and rather kept it in saving because you wanted that thing, which is a lack of wisdom, and now you're in debt. So, yeah, we need to do what is right. A lot of people think that they can just wander into the kingdom. But it's very clear from the word that part of believing in Jesus, which is the entrance to the kingdom, that Part of that belief, that whole of turning to him in faith, the one side of that turning in faith is repentance. I am sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. I change my mind. I change and I turn my direction and I'm going in his direction. And I believe in you. It's not just wandering in and coming and saying, I believe. And so Daniel's confession of sin is precisely what is needed. Then Daniel turns and he begins to pray. And we read this from verse 16 to 19. Let me just read it quickly, and then I must just list a few things. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, the holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all of those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. Remember, Daniel is praying a national prayer. He changed the fortunes of a nation. Come on, you can do it. I can do it as well as for ourselves. And he says, incline thine ear, open thine eyes and see our desolation, verse 18, and the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. Woo, that's a powerful. Lord, I don't have any merits of my own, but because of your compassion, your mercy. I'm presenting my request. God, because you're compassionate and merciful. God, I blew it. I was unwise. God, I blew it. I lost it. You know, but because of your mercy and your compassion, forgive me, O God. 
And do not delay because the city, thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Beginning at verse 16. A change is evident in Daniel's prayer. It moves from confession to petition. petition. And so there's a couple of things that I just want to go through. So in all our praying, in all our responding to trials, and as we face the remainder of the COVID period and things like this, we trust in God that it will end sooner. You know, the amazing thing to me is that I'm only aware of one prophet that actually prophesied something close to the COVID pandemic. It was almost like, why did God keep it a secret? I'm sure that God had people praying. His saints were praying, I'm sure. But it was almost like we were blinded to it. Why didn't we know? It was almost like it was hidden from us. You know, this trial that has come upon the whole world. But you know, one of the things that is coming out of it is now we hear prophets and apostles and pastors and teachers and ordinary believers prophesying great revival. So he's revealing to us, what's coming ahead, and he's giving us depth of perception and clear focus, which is really powerful. So I want to give you just a couple of things very quickly. Number one, from confession, Daniel's to petition. So we need to learn how to petition God and to pray. Saints, one thing that we need to really, really get more into, if we want to see national change and even individual changes, we have to get more into prayer. We have to be people of prayer. It should be our default response, our knee-jerk response, our immediate response. You know, people do not have because they don't take it to the Lord in prayer. And so we need to be greater intercessors, greater prayer warriors. We need to learn how to pray, pray for people, pray for events, pray for nations. You know, I remember some years ago, and I've mentioned this in church before, being burdened the whole day. It was like I I was in agony inside. It was actually physically, I was physically in pain, and I didn't know what was happening, and I came into the church and uh, came to the back of the church over here where the old um, prayer room was, and um, I walked through the door and I fell on my knees and I began to pray, but the way I prayed, I was groaning and travailing like a woman in labor, and I was on my hands and knees, curled up very much like the position described by Elijah, and I was groaning and travailing. I couldn't speak words. I couldn't say, oh God, because of these deep utterances, unutterable groanings, says Paul in Romans chapter 8, which is coming out. I had my hands around my middle. Eventually, I was rolling on the floor. It went on the whole entire time of prayer was a few hours, but an hour or more just groaning and travailing. And eventually, when I could utter words in my language, English, I begin to pray and cry, oh God, Lithuania. Lithuania, oh God, Lithuania. And in my mind, in the spirit, I saw tanks driving, rolling into a city and opening fire on buildings. I saw tanks firing on churches. And um, I saw pastors being rounded up and persecuted and put to death and imprisoned and all kinds of things. And I was back into groaning and travail. And then after I lifted again, when in English I could speak, and then I began to pray exactly the way Jesus prayed when he was um, praying over Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you like a hen? Mother hen gathers her chicks under its wings. And that's what I was doing in prayer. It was as if when I was praying, I was extending my arms and gathering, and it was like I was gathering all the pastors and the ministers in Lithuania. 
and gathering them under wings, you know, the wings of God through prayer. And I was holding them. And again, I was back into groaning and travailing. Oh, God. Oh, God. The pastors of Lithuania, the Christians in Lithuania. Oh, God. Deliver. And um, up to it was in excess of two hours. And then it began to lift, and I was laying on the floor weeping, and I was just praying for Lithuania. It was not a country I knew. It was not in my thinking and not in my mind. I had not seen anything on the news about it. It just came up in my spirit when I began to travail. And a few weeks later, we started to watch on the news as Lithuania wanted to break away from the Soviet Union, and they sent tanks in. And the pictures, the visions that I saw, I watched unfold on TV Tanks rolling into the city, firing into buildings. And then it was a few months later, I was in England. And then I got inside news of how they were arresting pastors, killing pastors, persecuting pastors. Well, you know how I wept then because I understood the prayer. I believe my prayers had national impact, one person praying. Come on, church. If God can do that for a nation, and for other nations, he can do it for our nation. And let's be the ones that will pray and respond in prayer. So we get out of confession, we get into petition. Secondly, that we pray according to God's promises in Scripture. Church, do we have promises for South Africa? Yes, we have. Specific prophetic words that nations would beat a pathway to the door of South Africans, how did you do it? We've had from when I was a little boy, I've heard prophecies of how revival is going to begin in South Africa and spread up through Africa and into the world. And it would start in the southern tip of Africa, very much like it did with Andrew Murray in the Cape. And so, yes, we have promises, and we've got promises according to his word, starting with Numbers 14, 21, as surely as I live, my glory will cover all of the earth as the waters cover the sea, going all the way through Isaiah 40 and uh, Psalm 72, Habakkuk chapter 2, that the glory of God, verse 14, will cover all of the world as the waters cover the sea. So we've got, we've got the promises of Daniel chapter 7, that we've been given a kingdom. And uh, God has given it to us in our favor. We have the promises in Revelation where John sees in a vision that now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. We've got plenty to pray on. The Antichrist is not going to take over. Anarchy is not going to rule. And you're not going to get bankrupt and you're not going to fail. You're going to go through. You're not going to lose your house or your car. And so we can pray for ourselves as well as our nation. Number three, Daniel's petition is God-centered. It's God at the center. You know, a lot of our prayers, we put ourselves at the center. It's very interesting to me that all of Daniel's focus, even though praying for himself and praying for the people of Israel, he's very concerned about God's purposes and God's glory. So we need to look bigger than even our own things and say, God, let your purpose, your kingdom, your glory be established. Number four, Daniel's prayerful petitions were also made in accordance with God's character. And so all I'm going to say about it is this, God's character. We need to look at the character of God. One of the wonderful things that came about in the last few years, and, and I want to mention Prophet Kribus in particular, Joseph Prince as well, preached at John Sheesby and Andrew Womack and many others. When we began to understand the, the beauty of the message of grace and one of the things that came out of it and the whole change that came in, subtle but not so subtle, was just of our understanding of God. And in essence, we began to understand the goodness of God. 
kindness of God. And through the Toronto revival, we began to see the Father's heart more than a judgmental, angry, grumpy God waking up in a bad mood every morning, waiting to strife us or punish us or whatever. We began to see this good, loving God. And of course, the songs, the praise and worship songs, God, you're good, and um, you're never going to let me down, and all of this kind of thing. And it's wonderful. And so in all of our praying, we need to pray with that in mind as well, is the character of God. You know, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good, because he's good for our good. You know, it's really powerful. And so in all our praying, we've got to understand that out of this, something good is going to come. Something good for me is going to happen. Something good for our nation is going to happen. Something good for the world. Something good that's going to glorify God is going to happen. And uh, so the fifth thing, and out of that, Daniel prayed understanding that when God acts, he will act for his own best interests and his own glory. Listen to this. When God acts in his own interest, he's always acting in your best interests. That's how good God is. If I'm, I'm going to get glory out of it. He's not going to get glory out of you suffering and failing and being punished. He's going to get glory out of you turning and triumphing and progressing and becoming a, a shining light and example to the others. And then the other thing about Daniel's request, he did speak to God concerning his grace and his mercy, and his compassion. You know, it's the very thing that Moses did when Israel sinned by making that idol under the leadership of Aaron while Moses was up on the mountain. Moses got into God's face and reminded him the fact that he said that I'm merciful and compassionate and I'm kind, you know, and I visit iniquity, yes, but blessing to thousands in your generational line. And so it's good to remind God of his goodness and mercy and compassion. He did not claim anything. He pleaded for mercy. And I think that we need to do it. You know, it's great to have a positive confession and say, I have the mercy of God. But there's times to actually ask for the mercy of God. I mean, didn't Jesus teach us that? You know, even though your heavenly father knows that you, all, you need all these things, ask him. And he wants us to ask. And I remember my brother Andrew sitting here. And there was one time when I was being invited to go and minister in Egypt and uh, very often what they would <laughs> do, the Egyptians, no sense of time. <laughs> so they wouldn't plan ahead and tell me three, four months ahead. It was normally two, three weeks ahead and say, Jean, we want you to come to Egypt, to conference, and this kind of thing. And this was one of those occasions. So I didn't have money. I hadn't been able to save. I hadn't been able to put aside. There was no money in the church to even help pay the ticket or anything like this. And I felt, you know, I should go. And I remember Prophet Quirbus had been teaching on grace. And then he said, if you understand grace, the next thing we understand is the mercy of God. And he started to teach on mercy. And um, Andrew can bear me out. We were driving and we were approaching Pochestruum. And then we were only about 30, 40 Ks from Stillfontein. And we were talking about it. And I just said, oh, Jesus, I need about 10,000 rand. I need money to get to Egypt. And I remembered Prophet Quirbus' teaching. And I just sat back and I just raised my hand. I said, oh, Jesus. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And Andrew was driving for me, and he was agreeing with saying, yes, Lord, have mercy. I kid you not. It was minutes, minutes after I said that. We were still kind of praying. My phone rings, and Prophet Quirbus phoned me. And um, he said, brother, I just feel led. I need to put 10,000 rand in your account. <laughs> I mean, I was just saying, God, have mercy. And God had mercy. I mean, is that a way of praying? Of course it's a way of praying. And so 
let's remember the grace, the mercy, and compassion of God when we pray for our nation, when you pray for yourself, when you're going through things. And last of all, when Daniel prayed, he prayed bigger than what he wanted God to accomplish. There's a case for praying big prayers. You know, if God says to us that we need to ask for things that is exceedingly above and beyond what we can ask, think, or imagine, because that's the kind of prayers that God wants us to pray. Very interesting that I, I want to just show you in Daniel chapter 9, the perspective that Daniel got because he prayed. We see it in the last verses from verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9, and Gabriel comes to him. It's really amazing. It's interesting that Gabriel comes and, and shares this with him. And the beginning of the exact timing of all this is we find it in the, the Gospel of Luke when Zechariah, who was to be John the Baptist's father, goes in to offer the incense at the morning sacrifice. And guess who's standing waiting for him there? And that was the angel Gabriel. Now, just by mentioning Gabriel being present there at the birth of John the Baptist and then Gabriel going to Mary and telling her she would have a baby as well, connects Daniel 7, 8, and 9, and then 10. These events, it connects it to exactly the time of Jesus by the appearance of Gabriel. I mean, how awesome is that? So listen to this. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, chapter 8, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Oh, man, there's sermons in this. And um, so he comes at the time of sacrifice, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That would be in the time that Jesus was crucified. <laughs> the saints of old knew what time to pray. And uh, we must always pray in the light of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But notice that while he was praying, Gabriel came in swift flight to answer. If we will pray, angels will be active. If we will pray, angels will not only get active, they will get active swiftly. And he instructed me, and he said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. If we will pray, we will get insight and understanding. And then out of that perspective. Remember, it was um, Rachel, was it? When she had the twins inside of a womb and they were jostling and they're fighting and she couldn't understand what was happening inside of her. And the Bible says she went to inquire of the Lord and then the Lord said, there's two nations inside of you. And so that's how she knew she was going to have twins. And of course, it was Jacob and Esau. And so she got perspective because she sought the Lord. And so if we would begin to pray, God will give us insight and understanding. And a lot of peace will come into your heart through that. So through in all the times that we're going through, get to the word, get into prayer, you'll get insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. If we will begin to pray, a word will go out. <laughs> and then listen to this. And I wonder what the word was. It must be what he says next. God goes, Shah, look at Daniel. He's not falling in a heap in the fetal position, crying, snot and tears, pounding the floor. Oh, God, why me? All that kind of thing. I highly esteem this man. 
And the word went out. And then, of course, here comes Gabriel to say, you're highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And, of course, the word also was what was going to happen from the time of Daniel on. He said 70 sevens or 70 weeks of seven. So 70 times seven is 490 are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. A mouthful. So what he was saying was this. It's going to be 490 years things are going to start to happen from now. So, Daniel, you've prayed in the timetable and the agenda of God. You see, everything God does, he needs prophets. He needs to first speak to the prophets, but then he needs the prophets to respond and to pray. God needs us to pray. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So, in other words, what? because remember, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and then you know, by later invading empires. He said, the word is instruction is going to go out and your city is going to be rebuilt. I mean, is that incredible? That's like God saying, hey, I want to give you understanding because you've prayed. I'm going to restore everything to you. And he says, and that happened under Cyrus, the ruler. Until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens. So seven sevens would be 49 years. And that's when then Cyrus made the decree. And then 62 sevens, which would make 69 weeks. It will be rebuilt. The city will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And of course, if you read um, Haggai and you read um, Zechariah, there was a lot of opposition to rebuilding, and Nehemiah, a lot of opposition to rebuilding the temple. And after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. So that, of course, the anointed one was Jesus. And he was put to death And he had nothing. Read Isaiah 53. The people of the ruler will come who will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come like a flood. So now he's prophesying beyond Jesus and he's prophesying the fact that Jesus will come once the city is rebuilt and um, what he would do is that he would put an end to transgression and end to sin and everything like this. And of course, that's what Jesus did by his sacrifice. But then another ruler came and then he prophesied what was going to happen in AD 70, the destruction again of the city and of the sanctuary. And that end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end and desolations have been confirmed. But he, which is Jesus then, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So Jesus' ministry. So for one week, the covenant will be confirmed And I don't want to bore you with too much detail. And so one week is seven days. So it was seven years. So from the time of Jesus, for seven years, he will confirm the covenant. In other words, all the preaching, the apostles, everybody, they preached to Israel. And God was trying to establish the covenant, but they rejected it. So in the middle of the week, he was cut off. That was three and a half years was the ministry of Jesus. He was cut off, rejected. He was crucified. And so that ended the covenant for three and a half years continuing. The apostles began, uh, continued to preach until the stoning of Stephen, which takes us up to around about AD 27, AD 30, somewhere around there. That's when great persecution came up. The disciples spread. And even Paul said to the Jews, you've counted yourselves not worthy of the gospel. We're going to the Gentiles. But Jesus put an end to sacrifice and offering. And um, then later in AD 70, so they continued with their normal sacrifices. That was put to an end under the Roman emperor when he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But it was the end of the old 
and the beginning of the new. Now the kingdom could be fully established. So saints, I want to just remind you that the most appropriate response, I know that was a little bit in-depth, but I tried to put Daniel's praying in a national setting, but that also spilled over in centuries. We are in a time of COVID. We are in a time of instability in our country. Don't underestimate the power of your prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person, those watching here, is powerful and effective, and God can change a nation through you, like he did through Elijah, like he did through Daniel. And uh, let's just pray biblically. Let's pray prophetically. Let's confess our sins. Let's confess our failings. Let's confess the failings of the people. Let's pray the character of God. Let's pray the purpose and the glory of God. Let's pray concerning the kingdom that God will establish his kingdom on earth. Now that's the macro, down to the micro. Yeah, you are in the middle of all of this. So you can pray for your own circumstances and situations. If God is big enough to take care of nations and all of our future, man, he can take care of you in this particular period of time and he will bring you out the end and your faith will be refined and you'll be stronger and you'll be more mature and you'll be more Christ-like and you'll be a greater example to those around you. You'll be giving them hope. They'll look at you and they'll look at you as a lighthouse. But more than that, they'll look at you as a life on which they can anchor their lives to give stability. You will be a safe haven for them in the midst of a storm. Come on, church. Let's respond in prayer. Amen.